Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. In episode 97, we're going to be looking at a very controversial passage in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, which says, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Is this a key passage that promotes the doctrine of unconditional election? Or is something else going on here? If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith, as that will help others find this content more easily. Also, recently I put out a new album called Kingdom Come, and I would appreciate y'all to go check that out as well on Apple Music or Amazon, Spotify. And again, if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review there. I'm blessed to be a part of the Omega Frequency family along with BDK and Kurt who put out great videos every week, multiple videos every week on their YouTube channels, Omega Frequency Live and Omega Frequency. So please go check those out. Also, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. So please go check that out and you will find many invaluable resources there to help grow your faith, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 97 rolling. All right, everyone. Well, Romans chapter 9 is one of the most important passages for those who are of Reformed theology or Calvinism to that they believe supports uh, the doctrine of unconditional election. And though uh, some folks like R.C. Sproul uh, have stated that uh, the five points of Calvinism generally hang on the doctrine of total depravity, others have argued that it's actually this idea of unconditional election that is the true foundation of the five points of TULIP. Now, I've done a three-part series on those five points, which I'd encourage you to check out in uh, episodes 93, 94, and 95 of Reclaiming the Faith. But uh, just real quick, we'll give a brief definition of unconditional election from John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, book three, chapter 21, section seven. He writes, We say then that scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal and immutable counsel determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. We maintain that this counsel as regards the elect is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth 
while those whom he dooms to destruction are excluded from access to life by a just and blameless, but at the same time, incomprehensible judgment. That's Calvin's definition, basically, of the idea of unconditional election. So is Romans 9 about unconditional election? Well, first, let's look at the background to the book of Romans. The Church of Rome began roughly in 33 AD at the Feast of Pentecost that we see in Acts chapter 2. Now, this was mostly consisting of Jewish believers. Then, around AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. So, the church became predominantly Gentile. Five years later in AD 54, the Jews were allowed to return to Rome and thus friction ensued in the church. The book of Romans was written from Corinth around the year AD 56 or 57. And you can see that in Acts chapter 20. But there's a big question needing to be answered. God made a promise to Abraham that through the Jews, through Abraham's descendants, the Messiah would come and the world would be blessed. Well, the Messiah came and the nations have been brought in, but what about the Jews? The vast majority of the Jews have rejected the Messiah. So, has God's word failed? Dr. Eric Hankins has written a great article on Romans 9 through 11 on the Calvinist doctrine of reprobation, which I have linked in the show notes for you. But let me read a little bit of that article for you. Dr. Hankins writes, the problem of Jewish unbelief is fully addressed in the letter's climax, Romans 9 through 11. Jews are rejecting the gospel and are therefore rejected by God. If God's righteousness is revealed in the power of the gospel to save Jews and Gentiles, then what of his righteousness if Jews are rejected? The whole promise of God in Messiah Jesus through his chosen people was to create a worldwide Jew and Gentile family through whom he would rescue all of creation. On one hand, those promises are being fulfilled amazingly. Gentiles are coming in faith, coming to faith in droves. What is happening in the church in Rome is known all over the world, as you can see in Romans 1.8. On the other hand, surprisingly, mysteriously, grievously, the Jews by and large are refusing to come. And this raises the question of God's righteousness. Has he been able to keep his promises stretching all the way back to Abraham? And so Paul answers the question posed by what, what is called the interlocutor in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Has the word of God failed? And Paul very strongly says, no, the word of God has not failed failed. So let's go through the book of Romans and we'll answer a few questions. First, whom has God chosen to save? Next, who receives God's wrath? Then 
Who is the Jacob of Romans chapter nine? And who is the Esau of Romans chapter nine? And finally, is there any hope for the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day? Well, let's begin in Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul writes, Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith or the obedience that flows from faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So here Paul talks about the promise of God in the gospel that the Messiah would be a descendant of David who would be a blessing to the nations and bring in the Gentiles. Now, skipping to verse 16, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of of God is revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith faith. And looking back at Habakkuk, you could also make a case that Paul is saying the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. All right. So let's continue to think about this. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. It seems like he could possibly be hearkening back to Jesus's words in Luke chapter nine, verses 24 through 26, where Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. So as Jesus was speaking to the Jews there in Luke chapter nine, he's making a promise for everyone though, because he says, whoever, right? Whoever is ashamed of him, Jesus will be ashamed of of them before the father. And so Paul says he is not ashamed of Jesus as the Messiah. He is boldly proclaiming Jesus as that promised descendant of David, the Messiah, the son of God. And this promise is for everyone. This gospel is for everyone who believes in Jesus. Now let's contrast that to what Paul says next in Romans chapter one, verse 18, starting there. Paul writes, for the wrath of God, and we talked about who is saved, those who believe in Jesus, who receives God's wrath. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now that word suppress is, like a word picture of putting someone in handcuffs, kind of like the Jewish leaders did to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. They were in in effect suppressing the truth, even though they knew the truth, 
but they were afraid of losing their place and their nation. Interesting. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about him is evident within them for God made it evident to them since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now it's very interesting though, Romans chapter, this section of Romans chapter one is often applied to Gentiles that all people are be, are able to determine and to discern that there is a creator of all things, an ultimate creator, God. It is also quite interesting that these words could be applied to the Jews of Jesus's day, the, not all, but the majority of Jews there in Judea and Jerusalem who uh, saw and witnessed Jesus with their own eyes in their own synagogues doing miracles and teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Those people in particular were without excuse. Paul continues in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Very interesting. Think about those Jewish believers. Though they knew Jesus, they got to know him. They did not honor him as the Messiah, as God's son. And thus, what happens to those of us who know God, but do not honor him as God or give thanks? Paul continues, but they became futile in their reasoning and their senseless hearts were darkened right? Think about what happened to those Jewish leaders. They went from bad to worse, claiming to be wise. Verse 22, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. Just pausing there. They had Jesus, their king, standing before them, Pilate saying, here he is, here is your king, the king of the Jews. And yet what do the Jewish leaders say? We have no king but Caesar. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. And Paul continues of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So this is definitely something that the Gentiles were doing. But if you read books of the Bible like Ezekiel, when he is taken by the spirit into the temple, who also is worshiping these images? Verse 24 of Romans 1, Therefore God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
who exchanged the truth of God for falsehood? Well, the Gentiles did for sure. But um, I believe the Jewish leaders did as well when they said, we have no king but Caesar. And it's interesting that Paul writes in Romans chapter two, starting in verse one, therefore you have no excuse, you foolish person. Every one of you passes judgment for in that matter in which you judge someone else, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. And so here it is universally accepted that Paul speaks to Jewish people who have been looking down at Gentiles for being idolaters. And Paul says, you do the same things. Now, skipping forward to verse 25, Paul brings up the issue of circumcision, which would be the ultimate physical sign that you are part of the covenant uh, that God gave to Abraham. And Paul writes to Jews here, verse 25 of chapter two, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a violator of the law, your circumcision has turned into uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will his uncircumcision not be regarded as circumcision? And he who passed, who Sorry, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a violator of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from people, but of, but from God. Very interesting there. How do we become a child of God? By the Holy Spirit, as Paul goes into in quite a bit of detail in Romans chapter eight. But let's continue. Here in Romans chapter three, verse one, we are introduced to a character known as the interlocutor, which is a fictitious character whom Paul has created to represent an unbelieving Jew who would be arguing against the points that Paul is trying to make. And so this fictitious opponent in a debate would say to Paul, in Romans 3.1, then what advantage does the Jew have? If circumcision is worthless, unless it's by the spirit, what, what advantage does a Jew have? What's the benefit of circumcision? Well, Paul answers in verse two, great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. What then? If some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true, though every person be found a liar. Now, it's very interesting that the argument the interlocutor is coming against is very similar to the argument brought up by Paul in Romans chapter 9. And let me read that to you briefly. So this is Romans chapter nine, starting in verse one. Paul writes, 
I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen and kinsmen, according to the flesh who are, what is the advantage? Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, right? So let's come back to our passage now in Romans chapter three right? The benefit of being a Jew is great in every respect. They were entrusted with the actual words of God. They were given the charge to bring the word of God to the world and demonstrate and and be a heralder of the gospel, right? But they're not believing the gospel now. So, if some of these Jews did not believe, did not believe, Does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? No. (laughs) No, the word of God has not failed. There is a remnant of Jews who believe in the Messiah and who faithfully carried out giving that message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul himself is one of those Jews. Now let's get into... Uh, let's skip forward a few verses to Romans chapter three, verse 21. And Paul brings back up an idea that he introduced in Romans chapter one, where he said in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith, right? In verse uh, 21 of Romans three, Paul writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So God has determined that those who believe and have put their faith in Christ Jesus receive the righteousness of God who is Christ Jesus. And Paul writes, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, who has faith in the promise God made to Abraham that through his descendants, the world would be blessed. And that descendant that came through David, who is the man Christ Jesus. It would seem, therefore, that those whom God has chosen to to save are those who have faith in him, who have faith in the promise of God, which has been revealed 
in Christ Jesus. And who receives God's wrath? Those who do not put their faith in God's promise as revealed through the Messiah, his son, Jesus. Let's keep going to chapter four, verse one. Paul writes, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that passage is found that Paul quotes from is found in Genesis chapter 15, where several years have passed since the original promise God made to Abraham that through him, the nations would be blessed. And so here in Genesis 15, God, the word of God comes to Abraham and takes him by the hand, tells him to look up at the stars. And he says, such will your descendants be. And it says that God, Abraham believed God there and it was credited to him as righteousness. And you see Abraham, there putting faith in the promise of God. Paul says in verse nine, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be, might be credited to them and the father of the circ of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Skipping to verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. That is God who gives life to the dead and calls it into calls into being things that do not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And she was about 90 yet with respect to the promises of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Think about the promise that God made. It would not be through Ishmael, but through Isaac right? That the world would be blessed, that the promise would come. It would not be Abraham banking on his own works, his own strength, right? 
which he tried to uh, use to bring about the heir with Hagar, but no, it would be through Sarah. He would have to believe in the promise and power of God. And he did. And that's how Isaac was conceived. Verse 22, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead, right? Believing in the promise and power of God. He who who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. Now there are other passages I could go to, but I want to now come to Romans nine to begin to answer again, whom is God chosen to save? Who receives God's wrath? Who is the Jacob of Romans nine? And who is the Esau of Romans nine? And finally, is there any hope for the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day? So let's move to Romans nine. Again, Paul starting in verse six is addressing the question by so many Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day, like has the word of God failed if the vast majority of Jews have rejected the Messiah, are not believing in God's God's promised Messiah Jesus. And Paul says, no, the word of God has not failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Just like Paul said in chapter two, not everyone who is circumcised is actually circumcised. Not all of the circumcision are actually circumcised because it's circumcision by the spirit that shows true circumcision. And again, if you read Romans 8, who receives the Holy Spirit? It is those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Verse seven, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but quote, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. That is the promise that God made to Abraham right? It's not going to be through your work with Ishmael and, or through with Hagar that produced Ishmael, but it's going to be through the promise. God, Abraham believing and putting faith in the promise of God that if he came together with Sarah, he would have a son. And he did Isaac. Verse eight, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Paul continues in verse nine, for this is the word of the promise. So this is the word of the promise that Paul is saying, this has not failed. This has not failed. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but there was also Rebecca when she conceived twins by one man our father, Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, 
so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it is written to her, it was written to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, please continue to keep in mind the context of Romans 9, coming back to Romans chapter 4, where Paul again is, you know, he's, he's talked about Abraham, starting in verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now, as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the descent and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not only for his sake only, not only for his sake was it written as credited to him, but also for our sake to whom it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So, so remember, it appears that God has chosen to save those who believe in his promise and are not putting confidence in themselves, but rather in what God has done. God has chosen that the righteous will live by faith. So let's consider then uh, this passage in Romans 9. Paul writes, starting in verse 10, not only that, but there was also Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man and our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it is said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Paul quotes the first book of the Old Testament and the last book of the Old Testament side by side. In Genesis chapter 23, we read, The Lord said to her, the Lord saying to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the younger shall serve, sorry, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, it's important to keep context here when we're looking at these verses, because the Lord himself is speaking and the Lord himself says he is not talking about two people individually, but rather about two peoples, two nations. These are not two people, two individuals that God is talking about. He's saying that these two people represent two peoples, two nations, two groups of people. And this older group of people will serve the younger group of people. Keep that in mind. Paul next quotes from Malachi chapter one. And this is what Malachi writes, starting in verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The Lord says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob 
but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And the men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. It's interesting. If you think about these two passages, they are written about 1500 years apart. And the context of this passage in Malachi is found in the book of Obadiah, where you can see the Edomites deciding to make war against the Israelites. And if you remember God's promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will will curse. And so it is interesting that the Edomites in Obadiah's day are acting against the promise of God. Similarly, Esau despised his inheritance. He despised and rejected the promise of God. And As Paul has made clear throughout this book, those who believe in and cling to the promise of God are blessed and saved. And those who reject the promise of God, who despise the promise of God, who despise that inheritance are rejected. Let's continue. In verse 14, Paul says, brings up another question that is being posed to him that, well, is God unjust? And Paul writes, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will show compassion to whomever I will show compassion. So it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the person who runs, but on God who has mercy. And as we, again, we look through the context of the book of Romans, God has chosen to have mercy to save those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens those whom he desires. And if we think back to Romans chapter one, who does God have mercy on? Those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And who does God harden? According to chapter one, right? He hardens those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He hardens those who, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That's who he hardens. Those who exchange the glory of God, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of 
corruptible mankind, for those who exchange the truth of God for falsehood. And what happened to the Jews? What did the Jews do of Jesus's day? And of Paul's day, what were they doing? Though they knew the truth, though they had the the glory of God revealed to them. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. We have no king but Caesar. Those are the people whom God hardened in order, in order to make his glory known and his name known throughout the earth. This is the concept of judicial hardening that God hardened the hearts of the Jewish unbelievers in Jesus in order to accomplish a greater good, which would be the salvation of the world through the death, the crucifixion and resurrection of his son, Jesus. But An unbelieving Jew of Paul's day might say then, well, why does God still find fault in me? Because who could resist his will? If that was God's plan, who could, who, why would God find fault in them? Well, verse 20, Paul responds, on the contrary, who are you, you foolish person who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and one for another uh, and another for common use? Well, Paul is actually quoting Jeremiah chapter 18 here. And in Jeremiah chapter 18, you have Jews who are rejecting God. They are sending their their children, they're burning their children alive to Baal and to Molech. They are idolaters and God is calling them to repent as you can read about very clearly in Jeremiah chapter seven. But here in chapter 18, verse five, it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, am I not able house of Israel to deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to tear it down, or to destroy it. And if we stop there, you might think that God is promoting this doctrine of unconditional election there. God can do whatever he wants, and he's chosen to do whatever he wants. He has chosen to, as some would say, arbitrarily choose people for uh, salvation and choose people for damnation, but don't stop reading in Jeremiah because the sentence isn't over. Let's start back again at verse seven, but let's keep on reading. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to tear it down or to destroy it. But... If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight, by not obeying my voice, 
then I will relent of the good with which I have said that I would bless it. So it's very interesting that God can pronounce a woe upon a people, but if that people choose to repent against whom he has pronounced a woe, damnation, destruction, if they repent, he will relent of the disaster and and conversely, If a nation which he has decided to bless turns and rejects that blessing, God will relent of bringing blessing on them and will instead destroy them. Very interesting. And so you can think about the nation of Nineveh with Jonah. God had pronounced destruction on them, yet they repent. And so God relents. Yet later on, as you can read about in the book of Nahum, those Ninevites who repented after several decades now have decided to go back to their wickedness and God destroys them. It's very interesting. Let's go ahead and think again about these vessels that Paul talks about for dishonor and some for honor right? Common use and honorable use. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to keep away from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver implements, but also implements of wood and of earthenware. And some are for honor, while some are for dishonor. Therefore, anyone, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be an implement of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So you may be in the camp of a vessel destined for dishonor, yet if you cleanse yourself, not if God cleanses you, but if you cleanse yourself from those things, you can become a vessel of honor. Very interesting. How would one become that? A vessel of honor. Paul will answer later in Romans chapter 11. Let's continue. Let's go back again to verse 22 in chapter nine of the book of Romans. Paul writes, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, namely us whom he also called not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. As he also has said in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people and her who was not beloved, beloved. Now, Is that Paul, again, preaching unconditional election and damnation? Or is Paul continuing to affirm that the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 has not failed? That the promise God named made to Abraham in Genesis 15 
and other places in Genesis have not failed. Through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. Continuing in verse 26, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. And who becomes a son of the living God according to Romans 8? Those who have received Jesus and have been given the Holy Spirit. Back to Romans 9, 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, if the Lord of armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. It seems that God had always planned that there would be a remnant. Has that promise and plan failed? No. Paul in Romans 9 verse 30, what shall we say then? Well, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, but the righteousness that is by faith. However, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though they could by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I, lay, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So let's think about our questions again. Who is it that is not put to shame? Who is it that is saved? And yet who, who are those that uh, receive God's wrath? Well, it is those who believe in Jesus, who believe in God's promise, who are saved and those who reject God's promise, who receive his wrath. So is it possible that Jacob is those people who believe in God's promised Messiah and Esau is those people who have rejected God's Messiah. So though it may seem like the Jewish people have become Esau by rejecting their inheritance and their birthright, Paul says, no, that's not, that's not the case. It's not the case because those Jews who have believed in Messiah are still Israel, while those Jews who have rejected Messiah have become Esau now. And those uh, Gentiles who had rejected Messiah, who have now believed in Messiah, though they were Esau, are now Jacob. They are now Jacob. And so the question now becomes what about the Jews of Paul's day? Is there any hope for them? Well, let's look now at Romans chapter 10. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. Talking about these Jews that have become Esau, these Jews that have rejected their birthright. Verse two, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They are not subjecting themselves to Jesus. They have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The majority, of course, not all, because there is a remnant. So Paul continues in verse five, for Moses writes of the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who performs them will live by them. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will go up into heaven? That is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. Let me pause for a minute because Paul just quoted Deuteronomy chapter 30. And let's go back and let's look at this passage to see what Paul is saying. It's very interesting. All right. Here's Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. For this commandment, which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of your reach. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it. Uh, get it for us to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it, for us to make make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land which you are entering to possess it. Very interesting. Moses is saying back then, it is not beyond your ability. You are not totally depraved, it would seem. It's not beyond your ability to love the Lord your God to obey his statutes. But Paul flips that on his head in a sense. And he's saying it's not the Mosaic law. It's that the Mosaic law was pointing. The the Pentateuch was all pointing to this descendant of Abraham. And even though you have rejected it, even though you may be part of the reprobate, it would seem, that are cut off, it is not too difficult for you to be grafted back in. He's talking to unbelieving Jews who have rejected Messiah. And he says, though you are an object right now destined for destruction, it is not too hard for you to be saved because you need to, all you have to do, and it is not too hard for you. It is you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. 
Verse 11, for scripture, this is in Romans 9, for scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is saved? Those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Who is destined for wrath? Those who reject that Jesus is Lord and refuse to call on him that they may be saved. And yet, no matter where you are today, if you are rejecting him today, you can still be saved. Though you are maybe currently an object destined for destruction, it is not too late. If you will repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold. And he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. He is still reaching out. Paul is saying right then, In 58, 59, 57 AD, God is still reaching out to these people who have rejected him. Verse one of chapter 11. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? Far from it, for I too am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying right there, look, I am proof that you can be someone who has actively opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet if you turn and repent, you are grafted in. You are grafted back in, even if you've been severed. Verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Far from it. But by their wrongdoing, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their wrongdoing proves to be riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, there so far, therefore, insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I may move my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their rejection proves to be their proves to be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump also, and if the root is holy, the branches are as well. Now, speaking about some of the Jews who have most, the majority of the Jews who have rejected Jesus, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, the Gentiles were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't look down on these Jews that were broken off. Okay. Remember that it is not you Gentiles who support the root, which is believing Israel, but the root supports you. Verse 19, you will say then, 
branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off. Why? For their unbelief. It was not arbitrary. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, branches, he will not spare you either, believing Gentiles. See then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if, if you continue in his kindness, for otherwise you too will be cut off. How do we continue in his kindness? Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. We continue in God's kindness by belief and we can fall from God's kindness, not by works, but by unbelief. And it's very interesting that Paul actually witnesses this happen, not just in him, but he witnessed this uh, people who had been cut off coming back to faith in one chapter later. Remember, he most likely wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth somewhere in Acts 20. Well, in Acts 21, Paul gets to Jerusalem. And starting in verse 17, we see Luke write about him and Paul together. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard about them, they began glorifying God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed." powerful. These Jews that had rejected the Messiah now in thousands upon thousands have now been brought back in through belief. All right. Well, as we're starting to to wind down, I want to give three passages from the early Christians about um, this issue that we've been discussing. And I want to uh, then wrap up with one passage from the scripture. All right. So first, let me read to you um, a passage from uh, Irenaeus. And this is in Against Heresies, book four, chapter 21. Irenaeus writes, the history of Isaac too is not without a symbolical character. For in the epistle to the Romans, the apostle declares, moreover, When Rebecca had conceived by one, even by her father, Isaac, she received the answer from the word that the purpose of God, according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, two nations are in your womb and two manner of people, two manner of people are in your body. And the one people shall overcome the other and the elder shall serve the younger. Our God who knows hidden things, who knows all things before they come to pass. And for this reason has said, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. In the next place, Jacob received the rights of the firstborn when his brother looked on them with contempt, even 
as also the younger nation received him, Christ, the first begotten, when the elder nation rejected him, saying, We have no king but Caesar. But in Christ, every blessing is summed up, and therefore the latter people has snatched away the blessings of the former from the father, just as Jacob took away the blessing from this Esau. And so Irenaeus is saying there, the believing people in Jesus, the Christians are that younger people. They are the younger who now have the inheritance and the original, those uh, unbelieving Jews have become Esau when they said, we have no king but Caesar, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and exchanging the glory of God for an image in the form of mankind. Here is Origen in his commentary on Romans, all right, speaking about this passage, writes, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. The apostle has resolved to explain that although the people of Israel have been repudiated through their unbelief, nevertheless, the promise of God that had been given to them did not fail and were not frustrated. Continuing, he says then, uh, this reasoning should be received not only in Isaac's cause, but also in Jacob's. For he says, Rebecca gave birth, not in the course of a fleshly birth, For when she had conceived twins from a single act of intercourse with Isaac before the birth occurred and before the boys had any good or evil deeds among men, the divine election was reckoned toward Jacob. As it is said, the elder will serve the younger and Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. But he teaches why these things are said in this way in order that according to election, the purpose of God might abide not by works, but by the one who calls. That is in order that it might not be those who are sons of the flesh, but those who are sons of God who are reckoned as descendants. Who are the sons of God? Those who by faith and by the power of the spirit receive Jesus as their Lord. Now, closing uh, the early Christian quotes with a passage from Clement of Rome uh, in 95 AD, starting in chapter 31, and then we'll also read in chapter 32. He is answering the question, how may we obtain the divine blessing? The blessing uh, that was promised to Abraham. How might we receive this? Clement writes, let us cleave then to his blessing and consider what are the means of possessing it. Let us think over the things which have taken place from the beginning. For what reason was our father Abraham blessed? Was it not because he wrought righteousness and truth through faith? Isaac, with perfect confidence, as if knowing what was to happen, cheerfully yielded himself as a sacrifice. Jacob, through reason of his brother, went forth with humility from his own land and came to Laban and served him. And there was given to him the scepter of the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapter 32, we are justified not by our works, but by faith. 
Whoever will candidly consider each particular will recognize the greatness of the gifts which were given by him. For from him we have sprung, from him have sprung the, the priests and all the Levites who minister at the altar of God. From him also was descended, speaking of Abraham, and this, that's who uh, Clement is talking about. From him also was descended our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. From him arose kings and princes and rulers of the race of Judah, nor are his other tribes in small glory, inasmuch as God has promised, your seed shall be as the stars of heaven. All of these, therefore, were highly honored and made great, not for their own sake or for their own works or for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of his will. And we too, being called by him, by his will in Christ, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our wisdom or understanding or godliness or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning, from the beginning, that faith which God Almighty has justified all men, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So who is Jacob? Jacob is those who believe in God's promise as ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Who is Esau? Those who have rejected God's promise and despised him, him, the man Christ Jesus. Who is God chosen to condemn? Those who reject his son. And whom has God chosen to save? Those who receive his son by grace through faith. So as we close today, I, in light of Romans 11, where Paul is strongly warning Gentiles who have been grafted in through belief to not be cocky, if the Jews were cut off from God because of unbelief, we can too, unless we remain in his kindness, right? Which is by believing in Jesus maintaining that. Well, the writer of Hebrews writes about this issue as well in chapter three. And so the writer of Hebrews starts in verse 12, take care brothers and sisters that there will not be any one of you in any one of you, an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but rather encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm unto the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Brothers and sisters, please take these words of the writer of Hebrews to heart and allow yourself to be surrounded by other brothers and sisters who will be honest with you and not always tell you that what you're doing is right and who will also encourage you strongly to pursue the love of God with your whole heart and to not, to not be hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's encourage one another daily as long as it is called today because one day there will be no more today. As Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that there will be a day when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he is revealed in his saints on that day to be marveled at among all who have believed. So may it be said of us that we were those who encouraged one another every day. And we were those who became partakers of Christ because we kept the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. God bless you. Bye.